We're going to open up the, the Bible to the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to look specifically at chapter 2. As you know, um, many of the Rick, who's actually here, wave Rick, um, that those guys were away most of the time this week, so Rick smartly, and though I was a little tired because of the time change, um, prepared to have someone stand up here. But if you're here to hear Exodus, come back next week and hear Rick continue the study on Exodus. But Rick, and I think I saw Bill Cross and others, glad to have you back. I hope the week went well at the Shepherds Conference, so excellent. So, meanwhile, today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. So if you were turn to me with that um, passage, um, this letter is to the church of Ephesus. And it speaks to the, to the power and sovereignty of God in the salvation of that church. In fact, Paul's prayer for this church, if you look at chapter 1, verse 17, if you scan over there, was for this church to know God intimately. And in doing so, the church would appreciate the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. This power of God was demonstrated through Jesus at the cross. He raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places and placed him above all things and made him head of the church. And that's the end of chapter 1. And this power is demonstrated all the more as Paul reminds those in Ephesus of who they were apart from Christ. And that's what we're going to pick up in chapter 2. Now, have you all ever looked back, for those of us who are believers in Christ, and looked back to who we were before Christ, comparably to where we are now and how God has grown us? You know, there are several in this congregation that I actually knew them before they became Christ, or before they came to know Christ. And it's amazing to see what God has done in their lives. And that's essentially what Paul is trying to draw out here to the those in Ephesus, is he's having them look back briefly to see what God's power has done in their life. And that's where we're going to start in chapter 2 this morning. In the text, you'll see a picture of a person who is dead to God versus someone made alive by God. So as we go through these passages of Scripture, there's two things I want you to come away with to be thinking through as we're studying this. One, I want you to be encouraged as a church I want you to be encouraged because I want you to remember where you were and where you are now because of Jesus Christ, that he made you alive in Christ. The second thing I want you to realize here is if you have not put your trust in Christ, I really want you to see your current position before the Lord as dead. And we're going to look at that together this morning. Now, as we look at this, I've titled this sermon as Made Alive in Christ. It's a simple title, but it's really the main point of the passage. The desire is that you see the surpassing riches of his mercy and grace towards us even when we were dead. Now, that's a direct quote from verse 7. And we'll unpack that as we go. But we want you to see the surpassing riches of his mercy and grace towards us even when we were dead. So, Paul begins in chapter 2 by writing, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So after saying in chapter 1 that Paul's prayer that they will know the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe, Paul reminds those in Ephesus that you were dead. You know, my mind goes back to an event in my own personal life. 
And that event goes back back 25 years ago. I was 20 years old, and I was working on a farm, a neighboring farm from ours, and I was bush hogging the field. Do you all know what bush hogging is? Raise your hand if you know what bush hogging is. I have to be honest, there were more in the first service, okay? But bush hogging is basically you have a tractor with a, with a connection to a mower deck, and that deck is fairly wide, and you use it to mow fields. This isn't a lawn mower that you put in your lawn. This is a big tractor. And I was mowing a grass waterway. This is an area where the water resides in the field, and I was full throttle on this tractor, four-wheel drive kicked in, and I couldn't see where I was going because the vegetation was about six to seven feet tall, and it was over the hood of the tractor, so I stood up on the tractor. Anybody who's got farming background, even though they've probably done it, knows that that's not a great idea, and you can probably see where this is going. I was mowing a grass waterway. What I didn't see was the washout. So the front tires went through the washout, knocked me off balance, came immediately out of the hole for the larger rear tires to go into the hole. And that's what took me out. And basically, I fell in between the fender well of the tractor, and I was essentially being dragged. Somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I got my hands wrapped up in the steering wheel, my right hand specifically, nearly broke my hand because of it got tangled all up. But I believe that's what saved me from going completely down. Now, you can imagine what would have happened if I completely fell off that tractor, I would have been dead, dead. It would not have been good. Um, the, probably the problem was with how to, how to treat me afterwards because I would be gone, essentially. I'd be in a million pieces. Um, but the thing brings me back to, it's easy for us to think about things in the physical death, the finality of it. But Paul's really bringing back here for them to think through the spiritually dead the finality of spiritual death, you know? So the source of their deadness were transgressions and sins. Now, the spiritual deadness means a complete separation from God. They were unable to have fellowship with God. Dead means dead. Just like we understand physical death means death, the spiritual death means dead means dead. There's no coming back from that. Just like me being run over by a bush hogger, it is, there's no coming back from that. Okay? Now, they were in that position due to their own transgressions. These are offenses. These are false steps. In addition, they were in that position because of their sin. These are acts that missed the mark. These are all deliberate acts against a holy God. So therefore, the first thing you need to understand, apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead. There is no life. There's no connection to God. As we move on to verse 2 and 3, you're going to see three areas that influence a dead person or characteristics of a spiritually dead person. Again, looking at verse 1, and you were dead in your, trans trans and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In verse 2, it says, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So again, in verse 2, two of those influences on the dead come up. And you were dead, and you were dead according to the course of this world. This is a spiritually dead person will act according to the course of this world. What does Paul mean by this? What are the ways of the world? By way of example, we can see this in the book of Judges. 
And the book of Judges is set up with Israel, and they kind of go through this cycle of sin. They sin, and then God judges them, and then there's repentance, and then there's a rescue, and then there's, they go good for a while, and then there's a sin again. But this phrase is repeated all through the book of Judges. It says, for everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You also example, see an example in Romans of what this could look like. Romans 1, 21 through 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. And then it states on many other things that they did. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you can see it too. The world confuses things, even to a point of confusing sexuality and the very way God made us, to, design, to denying even the very essence of God's created order. The world is man-centered rather than God-centered. In fact, the ways of the world are very confusing, very arduous, very complicated. The world twists things. Up is down, good is evil, right is wrong. These days it's even very difficult to even walk into a corporate setting and not offend someone by something you say, using the wrong pronouns or things like this. Again, this is them doing what was right in their own eyes. But you know, be encouraged. Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I have overcome the world. So let's look at the second characteristic of a dead person. A spiritually dead person will act according to the ways of Satan. As you look at verse 2 and continuing on in there, verse 2, it says, According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient. Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. He also has said that he is the father of lies. In the first John chapter 5, verse 18, the verse states that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So not only does the dead, spiritually dead person, follow the ways of the world, but they also follow the ways of Satan. You know, as you look at that verse 2, it says, quote, the prince of power of the air. It's an interesting, interesting phrase. The NIV says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Basically, it's not the abode by which Satan occupies, but rather it's an evil power with control in the world, but whose existence was not necessarily material, but rather spiritual. The unbeliever is in league with this satanic power. In reference to the now working in the sons of disobedience there at the end of verse 2, it is the character of Satan that is work in those who are disobedient to those who are spiritually dead those who are of the, of the world. Well, you might say, well, you know, I'm a good person, portraying that there's some sort of hierarchy of goodness that marries you, merits you some sort of favor, because that's how the world thinks. I'm good enough. I'm generally good. No, apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead. You are a follower of this world and consequently a follower of Satan. Now, at the end there it says, now working in the sons of disobedience, you know a son resembles a parent? In this case, that son resembles Satan. Again, this is what a dead person looks like. However, church, be aware, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it states, 
You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now we're going to look at another characteristic of a dead person. A spiritually dead person also acts according to the fleshly desires. The third characteristic is the flesh. As you look at verse 3, it says, Among them we too all formerly lived <coughs> excuse me, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So not only does the philosophy of the world guide the unbeliever, and they follow Satan, but they indulge in the flesh. We all have the flesh. And the dead, but the dead person is driven by the flesh and its desires. The Bible calls us as believers to flee such things. 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. You know, you can see similar language in Genesis 3 at the fall of man. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, pride of life, she took some and ate it. This is what the world has to offer. To bring it in today's vernacular, To bring it to today's term, it's the same as money, sex, and power. That's what it's broken down. That's what the world pursues. What does this look like? Well, it's what it looks like when you start saying, you know, I deserve this. Whatever it is, you start looking inward and saying, you know, I deserve whatever. It also may look like, you know, if it feels good, do it. Definitely see that in the world, don't we? It can also come out and say, you know, if it would make me happy, and God would want me to be happy, right? Then it's good. The sad thing is, do you know how many marriages have broken up just on that phrase alone, God would want me to be happy? It's really hard. But that's all lies. This is what the world gravitates towards. This is all justification for sin. And at the core is a feeding of the lust of the flesh. Men and women, apart from Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God, you are dead, and there is nothing you could do to bring yourself to life. And the latter part of verse 3, look at it with me, really tells the outcome of being an enemy of God. You're all subject to God's wrath. The world and their made-up idealistic God, this lowercase God that they, they think they know, they believe is all love, The God of the Bible is full of love and mercy, but he is also full of wrath too and unable to look upon sin, according to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, these first three verses presents a hopeless picture of a spiritually dead person who deserves nothing but God's wrath. And that's what Paul is trying to remind this church of Ephesus of who they were. Remember, though, Church, God sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins, a satisfaction of God's wrath towards us. Remember that. Now, as we look at verse 4, you're going to see this, but God. 
It has been said, I've heard it many times, that this is one of the greatest conjunctions ever stated, this world but, because it hangs the very essence of the gospel. In verse 4 it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. So what is mercy? In this case, it's the same word used to translate loyal love, an undeserved kindness. God's great love sought the highest good for the objects of his choice, even though they were rebellious sinners. Believers in Christ, that's you, that's me. We were rebellious sinners, but because of God's great love, he had mercy. The mercy is rich, so the love of God is great. We need to remember that as a church. So then it brings us to the next part as we look down at verse 5. We'll look back here at verse 4. But So what did God do? In the coming verses, you're going to see three movements that God did towards a spiritually dead person who was unable to have a relationship with him on their own. So in verse 4, about God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So God, first point here, he made us alive with Christ. And the key thing here is that while we were dead, God moved towards us. I did nothing to reserve God's mercy. He took a dead and lifeless person like me, like you. And he made us alive with Christ. You know that time when I was talking about sitting on the tractor and I almost died? I wasn't a believer then. That's God's mercy. I could have died apart from Christ. But he'd mercy. Don't understand it. But I look at that as God's mercy. Now, at the end of that verse, it says, by grace you have been saved. And that's a parathetical phrase there, but we'll discuss that a little bit as we go down in verses 8 and 9. But until then, we want to look at what's the next thing that God did? What else did he do? Looking at verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the second point here is he raised us up. He took a spiritually dead person and made them alive. And then he raised them up. And what does that mean by raising them up? What's essentially happening is a dead person is being resurrected, so to speak, raised to something new. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, there if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you put your trust in Christ alone, then you've been made new. You have a whole new set of values you don't look at the world, you don't look like the world anymore. You're not perfect, but you are saved. You are raised up. The third thing that God did also is found in this verse. He seated us with him, with Christ. Now this is a position spiritually as compared to verses 1 through 3 where you are dead and enemies of God subject to his wrath. Now you're set up in heaven where Christ is. Just as it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And I bring that about to really prove the point here that as believers in Christ, we are fo- not focused on earthly things. We are focused on things above. This is not our home. 
We are mere travelers. We long for heaven to be where Christ is. We are a new citizenship. So in verse 7, you're going to see a so that. And that's a purpose clause. And it connects two things in the sentence together. And it's given us the purpose or the reason. In this case, what is the purpose? What does verse 7 say? Look at it with me. Why did he do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God will use the regeneration of believers to show or demonstrate the boundless riches of his grace. All that Christ did and all that we have as a believer, that is in the kindness and the incomparable riches of his grace, of God's grace towards us. It was his work. It was Jesus' death. It was his burial and his resurrection that completed the transaction that made it possible for a person who was an enemy of God to be reconciled back to a holy God. This God-man, Jesus Christ, came and died on your behalf and did what you could not do for yourself. So God made you alive, he's raised you up, and he's seated with you in him as a believer in Jesus Christ. These riches of his grace are even expounded even further as we look at the next verses as we look at verses 8 and 9, look at it with me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, I was talking to somebody before the service about this section of passage, these section of verses, and they love this, this passages. And this verse 8 and 9 was the very core of me understanding the gospel, and for this gentleman it was too. It really brought about that we were dead, and, and who did the work on our behalf? I'm going to pull these verses out together and look at separate, many points here, but the first point I want to make is the key points of salvation. The basis of God's salvation is grace. You know, the simple definition of grace is undeserved favor, right? And it's okay to stop there. But however, when you really look at grace, it's actually undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. We deserved God's wrath. We were all destined for hell. But God, in his great love for us, he did something so that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. It's incredible. We were spiritually dead, but God. And it was all based on grace. The second point of salvation here that I pull out is the instrument by which you receive salvation is through faith. So the natural question is, what is faith? Faith is not an act or work that earns merit from God, but rather putting your trust in a person who is trustworthy, reliable, and able to save. It is not wishful thinking. Like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. You know the children's stories, right? Or, I hope God saves me. I hope God saves me. This is putting your trust in Christ alone for something you cannot do for yourself. This is not just an intellectual belief, like a fact. This is a trust that you will put your entire life in the hands of Christ, not depending on your self-reliance, because that's what the world looks like, but on him alone and the work that he did on your behalf. 
You cannot save yourself, which is reinforced further as you look at this verse again. And it says, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And that brings us to the next point. This is a gift. In fact, in line with God's kindness, though we were dead, this grace and faith is given as a gift from God. You know, what do you do when someone offers you a gift? You receive it. Children, when you're at Christmas and you get a gift, what do you do? You anxiously open it up because you joyously receive it. You receive that gift. It is freely given. You do not earn the gift, which brings us to the next point as you look at the end of verse 9. The salvation is not a result of works. And it brings it out even more as you look at the end of this verse. So that no one may boast. You know, our boasting can only be in the Lord according to 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. So if you add anything, any work to what Christ did on the cross, it negates it. Because then it says Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient. And we know biblically it was sufficient. Which brings to a very important practical application for this text. Are you dead or are you alive in Christ? <coughs> if you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, the world would say, I hope that I've done enough good things to outweigh the bad things. And I've seen this in my own evangelism trips and, and, and discussions with folks. And I'm sure if you talk to Jack Dove and those who go down to VCU, possibly 80% of the time, that may be the answer that you get. And I'm here to report that is just like everyone else in the world. They're relying on their self, looking inward, to earn some sort of merit in their view, it could be karma, it could be whatever, but it's completely wrong, and it's a twisting of the world and twisting of Satan. They're trying to get to heaven by their own merit. But again, we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the verse we just looked at. For you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. I emphasize those words, it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what about if you're alive in Christ? We're believers. Now what? Let's look at verse 10 together. I'm going to go through the points here. First point is, I'm going to read it first. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So the first point here is we are his workmanship. As a result of this free gift of salvation, we are his handiwork. It's like a piece of art, a masterpiece is the way the language reads here. And, if you could, and it's a beautiful contrast, quite frankly, when you look at the first three verses where we were dead, but God, and here we are now, his handiwork, this masterpiece, a creation of God. It's a beautiful picture. The second point here is we were created for good works. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in a second. But those created for good works that God prepared beforehand in advance for us to do. That was his purpose. That all which highlights his character, his mercy, and his loving kindness for us. And then we see that word that so that again in the text. That we would walk in them. Walk in these good works. Because God has prepared a path of good works for the believer that he will perform in and through them as we walk in faith. The works are a result of our faith 
and because of the free gift of salvation that God has provided us. So we want to walk in them in joy, knowing who you are before Christ compared to the incomparable mercies of his grace that he has given to you. Church, we are not dead, but we are alive. So what are these good works? That's the question I really want to kind of hone in here a little bit on. What does this look like? And I'll, I'll kind of answer that first in a general kind of an aside, and then I'll get more specific. The first generally, and again as an aside, you know, I've been chewing on this for a little bit for the past couple of years, but it started back in a conversation I had with someone in my garage a few years back. This guy was a president of our neighborhood's men's club, and he was over the house. His truck just happened to break down in front of my house. And we were chatting, and he was talking about the men's club and all the good works that these men do in this club and in the neighborhood, and how these men would drop anything to help a person in need. Mind you now, this is a men's club. It's a secular club. It's a club that just gathers a bunch of men, and I know what goes on in a men's club. But there's no doubt in my mind that these men would do anything to help a person in need. But it really got me to thinking, what is the difference between these good works and the good works of a Christian, of a believer in Christ? Is there a difference? You know, it really feels good to do good things, does it not? It really feels good. We're all made in God's image. And so to the extent we all have this desire to, good, to do good works and helping a person in need. But what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in those good works? The person receiving that good works doesn't care. They're the benefactor of it. You know, for example, if somebody's water heater breaks down and one of these men come over and fix the water heater, they're a believer and unbeliever. There's, it's a good work, but it's a benefactor of that person. They don't care. So what's the difference? Now, regarding the good work, I don't think there is actually a difference. Both are good and doing well-being for the person that receives it. But to the per- person performing the good work, it is who is glorified in the end. Is it the performer of the good work glorified, or is the one who provided the gifting to do the good work? In our case, God Almighty, who has gifted you to do the good work through his strength and his power, who raised you up from being a dead person. Have you once ever lifted your eyes and praised God for the good works he has for you and has you doing? The motivation is different. We serve a God who saves, and we can praise him for that work. We can praise him for what he's doing and for the work that he's prepared beforehand for us to do. Now, it reminds me a little bit of Malachi, and our fellowship group is studying Malachi. <coughs> Excuse me. When, the prophecies, uh, when Malachi is prophesying against the Levites and Judah as a whole, and he says in chapter 3, God speaking through Malachi, Will a man rob God? As a question, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how are we robbed you? And if you look at Malachi, the the prophecy is really against the Levites. And Judah has as a whole, the Levites bringing poor sacrifices to God. And there's also poor worship, half-hearted worship. So it really made me think in terms of the good works that we do as a church. Are we robbing God? Are we robbing him Glory and praise, lifting up our eyes to him and worshiping him because he is the source. He is the source that has given us giftings to do good works. You know, in contrast, the unbeliever 
is seeking credit for his soul. It goes back to, hopefully I do enough good things, right? But the believer is seeking glory for the one who saved his soul. That's the difference. So that was free. I'm going to set that to a side for now. And secondly, I want to move to more specific. As you look later in the letter to the Ephesians, you will see Paul describes gifts given to the church and specifically gifted leaders in the early church to equip the church for works of service. If you turn over to chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, we'll just go through this um, briefly. It says here, he says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the works of service to the building of up the body of Christ. And Paul continues down in verse 13 for this purpose. He says, until, all, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we, so, in the end of the day, what are those good works? The works are those that build the body of believers to attain the fullness of Christ. You know, we all here as the GBC members, some of you teach middle school, some of you teach high school, some of you teach grade school, hold the babies. Thank you for holding the babies. It's, it's awesome. Um, some of you clean the church. Some of you work the, during the service, works the, the thingamajiggy that I can't remember the name of, um, PowerPoint. Um, those things like that, those are done so that we can come together as a body of believers and worship and sing songs and praise him together and have fellowship. Praise God for you. You're doing a good work. I came across a quote in my preparation from Richard Strauss. He says here that God is not trying to produce successful Christian business people who can impress the world with their money and influence. He's not trying to fashion successful church leaders who can influence people with their organization and administrative skills. Nor is he trying to fashion great orators who can move people with persuasive words. But what he's trying to do, he wants to produce in his followers the character of his son, his love, his kindness, his compassion, his holiness, his humility, his unselfishness, his servant attitude, his willingness to suffer wrongly, wrongfully, his ability to forgive, and so much more that characterize his life on earth. That is how we do good works. That's the character by which we carry these good works forward. We should walk in them in light of the character of Christ. We need to lift our eyes and give glory to him. For we could not do this apart from Christ because we were dead. And because of this, we have joy and we walk in these good works as a thank you back to him for what he did. He made us alive. He raised us up. And he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. You know, in my own personal study in I, the question is, how does good works work? You know, how do we know these good works and how do we do them? You know, I've listed several passages here. And I'll just briefly touch on them. But for your own personal read, um, this is just some verses I've come across in my own quiet time. But Luke 7, verses 36 through 50, this is about a woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair and poured per perfume on his feet. And why did she do this? Because if you knew this woman... She was a great sinner. And certainly those that were at the table with Jesus recognized that. But Jesus said, she loves much because she was forgiven much. 
And that's how we, as a body believers, approach these good works. We thank God because we were dead. We were forgiven much, so we need to love much and love him and serve him all the more. The second verse here, sorry, I forgot to hit the PowerPoint. The second verse I want to look at is a fee, excuse me, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus says in these verses, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The simple message here tied to this, how does good works work? You spend time with him. You spend time with your Savior. And lastly here, and this is a continuation of Ephesians chapter, in chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 17, and looking at verse 10 specifically, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Let me rephrase that. Highlight that again. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Okay? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Church, stay clean. Flee from sin. How? By staying in his word, persevering in the faith. And these are just a few ways through Scripture to help encourage you to read on your own, in your own quiet time. But you know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have put your trust in him alone to do what you cannot do for yourself, then you are the seed that fell on the good soil, according to Matthew 13. These are those who heard the word, understood it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty for the kingdom of God. All to the praise to the one who rescued them from being dead. My hope here at GBC is that you'll do just that. You'll respond to God's word, you'll rejoice and work the work of Jesus Christ and persevere all the more. Church, you were dead, but God, you were made alive, and you were raised up, and you were seated with him in heavenly places. Let's praise God all the more for that. What a privilege it is to open God's word and study. Pray with me. Father, you are kind. You're merciful. Thank you for rescuing us, those of us who are dead, but because of your great work have been rescued. Thank you for all that you do in our lives, sustaining us. Help us to continue the good work that you have for us, that you prepared beforehand. Help us to do well. Help us to serve you all the more. Help us to look, lift our eyes to you, to praise and to worship you because you're the source of those good works. We praise your name. We long for your heaven. Jesus, come soon. And this we pray because we believe it to be a character of your son, Jesus. Amen.